Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Dr. Hal Brands, the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. He's also a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of a new book, The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. He also served at the Pentagon as a strategy advisor to former Defense Secretary Ash Carter. Hal, thanks so very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And this conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems also sponsors our wider strategy coverage. Uh, it's a it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's a, a great and important book at a very important time. Uh, critical lessons from uh, history, you know, broadly because you bring in a lot of different elements, but particularly the Cold War that are applicable today. And as you know, Secretary, I, I loved your George Marshall uh, example when he was Secretary of State in 1947 when he said, you know, no man quote can think with full wisdom and deep convictions about the Cold War. Uh, who has not at least reviewed in his mind the period of the Peloponnesian uh, War and the fall of Athens, right? We have a growing diplomatic information, military and economic competition uh, with the Chinese and Russians. And indeed, uh, that's actually been going on for about a, a decade. Uh, you can even argue that there, we have been in hot cyber and space war uh, for, for the past decade. And watching the Olympics, uh, I'm reminded of my own childhood during the Cold War, where I find myself rooting for Western athletes and not for Chinese and Russian athletes, where uh, that might not have been the case, uh, at least in pre-doping days, right? You, you occasionally rooted for the best athlete who, who, could, who could do a good job, even, even though it's always go America. Um, since the dawn of the nuclear era, we've tended to be very conflict uh, averse, uh, we've tended to want to focus on uh, uh, sanctions uh, and the like, right? Because in a thermonuclear era, conflict was a very, very bad thing. And yet the superpowers found a way to duke it out in, through proxy wars, right? All around the world, Vietnam being a good example, which you focus on in a number of different cases across Africa. This time it's different because these two nations are not economically isolated. They're integrated into the, into the global, uh, global economy. And the title of your book is Twilight Struggle, hence the notion of a twilight struggle, a struggle on the margins and the shadows, as John Kennedy uh, noted. That struggle was actually, is, is right now, actually hot in cyberspace and in space-based. Uh, during the Cold War, Soviet leaders were expert at brinks, brinksmanship, and Vladimir Putin idolizes Stalin, and we've seen that playing out over the past uh, many months. He's just approved peacekeepers uh, for the Russian separatist, uh, separatist enclaves of Donetsk and Luhansk uh, that Moscow has recognized as independent, contriving incidents to use, uh, or rather to justify use of force against Ukraine. He's not expected to stop uh, in these two separatist enclaves, despite uh, the threat of sanctions. So brinksmanship is actually turning now into marksmanship. I, I want to get to your book in a moment, but does the shooting nature of this confrontation now between Russia and Ukraine, and indeed the, the heating up of this confrontation with the West, uh, change the fundamentals uh, in terms of the approach from, from your book? I think it mostly just underscores the key point of the book, which is that um, while we prefer for great power competitions to play out peacefully, they happen in the shadow of war and the danger of war is omnipresent. Now, it, it doesn't look like the United States is 
going to get militarily involved in a conflict in Ukraine. At least that's certainly not the Biden administration's preference. But I think one thing that everybody will be watching closely is what escalatory dynamics might arise from this crisis. If the United States responds with crippling sanctions and the Russians push back in cyberspace or elsewhere, where do things go from there? And this, of course, is a dynamic that Cold War policymakers would have been very familiar with. Uh, in, in, indeed, and, and one would say that at the time we got quite expert uh, at messaging and, and working in these uh, gray zones and in, in these uh, shadows, right? I mean, my, my case is we need a better gray zone playbook, ultimately. Um, have, have sanctions, you know, Russia, uh, uh, now that Russia has moved, uh, Germany uh, is talking about, uh, you know, has halted the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That's something that's been important to Putin. Uh, but Putin has also abundantly made it clear he thinks he can weather these sanctions. He may be misreading the room, uh, but but ultimately he is still acting. Have sanctions and the promise of economic pain ever dissuaded a nation from executing an invasion or taking another action like this? Well, it's hard to make a categorical statement because we don't know what cases countries don't select into, to use a political science term. And so are there cases where a country might consider aggression, but never gets to that point because it worries about economic and other punishments. I think in, in Putin's case, he's signaling that whatever pain the West can inflict on him is less than the pain he fears from allowing events in Ukraine to go on their current trajectory uh, and seeing the government consolidate itself there and move closer to the West. And so he's, he's gambling that Russia can withstand whatever pain the West can inflict, or perhaps that the West will get tired of the confrontation over time. And so this is one of the things to, to watch. If, if Putin finds himself in uh, some sort of stalemated conflict or finds himself in a pretty intense economic confrontation with the West, might he look for ways of generating counter leverage through escalations of his own? I think that's one of the scenarios that probably most worries U.S. policymakers right now. Um, and from an escalation management uh, standpoint, how what's, what's the way the administration has to press ahead in terms of being tough? Because this is an adversary who's testing us that goes far beyond Ukraine. It's about Ukraine, but it's not about Ukraine. How do they have to manage this escalation to achieve what it is we want to achieve, which is a global dissuading uh, influence on other autocratic powers? So I think there are a variety of things. I mean, one is going to have to be a significant uh, eastern flank reinforcement in NATO to, to dissuade Putin from any sense that he might be able to run a similar playbook against the Baltic countries or, or Poland, I think there are probably going to be uh, measures needed to shore up U.S. cyber defenses to make sure that Putin doesn't think he has an asymmetric uh, advantage there. And then there's also the question of what the United States does in Ukraine itself. And so if there's ongoing resistance, would the United States um, find it dangerously escalatory to support an insurgency, or would it find that uh, a way of bogging the Russians down and create preventing them from creating further mischief? Elsewhere, my, my sense is that that question will be the source of some debate in the administration going forward. Uh, well, one last question along these terms, and, and then I uh, want to do want to focus on your book, which I find, uh, again, as I mentioned, a tremendous work. Um, how, ma how many conflicts have begun over perceptions of, of weakness? Uh, because this sense that autocrats miscalculate is, is something that is uh, almost uh, a, a, a staple, right? Japanese misreading uh, American actions, Argentina reading the withdrawal of HMS endurance uh, by the Thatcher government from the South Atlantic as a sign the Falklands didn't matter, taken with a couple of other uh, errors. You, you know, so UK was no longer interested in the region. Saddam going into Hussein, uh, Saddam Hussein going into Kuwait, misreading uh, US statements. 
Um, how many times has this happened where, where it's either a misreading or an outward sign of weakness that actually causes conflict? Well, this is one of the longstanding debates in the international relations literature. And I guess well, I would say that you know ev every war, and I'm borrowing from the scholar Jeffrey Blaney here, ev every war is based on uh, false optimism of some sort, because if both countries could tell how the war was going to turn out before it started, then at least one of them would have a reason not to wage it. And so uh, where that optimism comes from, it, it could be from an overestimation of one's own strength. It could be from an underestimation uh, of one's enemies. But, but certainly we've seen cases in the past where uh, adversaries underestimated the will of the other side to fight or underestimated the, pro the probability of a third party coming into the conflict. The North, invasion, North Korean invasion of South Korea, for instance, would be a Cold War example of that. Is, is this a breakdown of deterrence or is that a wrong way of looking at what's happening here? Well, the right? U.S. I mean, hasn't really tried to deter a Russian military assault on Ukraine. And, and President Biden took that option off the table in terms of placing troops in harm's way back in November or December. And so I think that whether the U.S. would openly admit this or not, we've been in more of a cost imposition posture since then, essentially saying that we, we may not be able to prevent this from happening, but we're going to try very hard to make it extremely unprofitable for, for Putin. That doesn't seem to have dissuaded him from going ahead with steps so far. And the Biden administration doesn't seem to have much confidence that it'll, it'll dissuade him from going ahead with the larger invasion of Ukraine. I think that the bigger question is, you know, what costs in the West impose uh, after a larger assault and, and what effect does that have on Putin's calculus in the future? And now I'd like to get into the, the meat of your book. Um, let me start by, by sort of uh, going into different elements of this competition, right? And some Cold War things that could be applicable because um, in the wake of the Russians going nuclear in 1949 is what sort of made the competition a lot more serious and then also changed how we were organized as a nation for that, right? Whether it was USAID, whether it was investment in science and technology, right? I mean, because we realized, and, and of course, with the beginning of the Soviet Union was the steady um, Soviet and, and communist sort of information, disinformation war in the United States, uh, right? Because the, the, the Soviet Union was committed to destabilizing the United States. Let me just go back to the fundamental question, right? During the Cold War, we had a pretty good understanding of what our adversaries were, what was motivating them, because you have to under really understand your adversary if you're going to deter them or shape them somehow. Do we understand our rivals today what motivates them? What are their red lines and how to fundamentally deter them? Because what's happening now in Ukraine suggests Vladimir Putin is not being particularly deterred by anything that we're saying or doing. I, I think our understanding is certainly incomplete. It, in some ways, we're better off than we were during the Cold War. So the level of Russia expertise and China expertise that the United States has both within government and within academia and think tanks is greater today than the amount of Soviet expertise we had at the beginning of the Cold War. As, as one former CIA director uh, once put it, in the beginning, we knew nothing. Our, our knowledge of the Soviet Union was, was very scant uh, in the late 1940s, with the exception of you know, pockets of analytical brilliance like uh, Kennan and, and Chip Bolin and some of the other folks who had been studying the Soviet Union for 20 years, we're, we're, we're in a better position today in many ways, but we certainly don't have the same 
uh, we haven't made the same investments in understanding our rivals that we ultimately did during the Cold War. And so one of the things that develops during the Cold War is this entire Sovietological universe of, of academics, of government analysts, of um, you know people who have devoted their lives to uh, understanding the enemy. And of course, there are many people who have done this vis-a-vis Russia and China today, but Russia expertise in particular really fell off a cliff after the end of the Cold War. Uh, we haven't made the same investments in studying uh, China and developing expertise on that that we did during the Cold War. And I, and I fear that as China becomes a more and more closed society uh, under Xi Jinping and in the wake of, of COVID, uh, a lot of the expertise that we have will be uh, a wasting asset. And so I think if you've actually seen the Biden administration acknowledge quite candidly that we don't know nearly enough about what makes Xi Jinping tick, for instance, and, and even you know what he hears from his closest advisors. So it's clearly an area where we still have a ways to go. Um, how do we need uh, right? And and part of this is also right. You can have a Fiona Hill, who's one of the nation's great uh, assets, on your National Security Council. But actually, if you don't use her uh, or or the leadership isn't paying attention to her, then somehow you know that expertise can can certainly be lost. Right. So it does all start at the top. Um, during the Cold War, we organized for a systemic long range competition. Right on how the United States would use aid, how the United States would use information, uh, technology, atoms for peace, you, you know, like one program after another that was created uh, to both advance American technological interests, allied technological interests, and, and again, America's image in, in, in the world. How do we need to be organizing for this current challenge with, with two powers that we strategically worked to separate, right? I mean, we didn't deal with both of them at this level of power, probably ever during the Cold War? So I, it, it's an interesting question. I mean, again, we're in sort of uh, both a good news, bad news situation. So the, the good news is that we don't have to start from scratch in the same way that we really did during the Cold War. I mean, it's, it's easy to forget that the Cold War and, and to some extent World War II were, were really what birthed the national security state. And so the National Security Act of 1947 really establishes the foreign policy of bureaucracy that we know today. And, and so this is something that was really built in the course of the Cold War and evolved considerably over the course of the, the Cold War. The Department of Defense evolved a lot, for instance. We, we would layer on additional issue-specific departments and agencies, the U.S. Uh, Arms Control and Disarmament Agency or, or USAID or whatever the case might have, have been. We, we have in many ways, the basic infrastructure. Now, we don't have to create an intelligence community, a peacetime intelligence community uh, that is from scratch, right? We don't have to create uh, a statutory uh, body, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We, we already have these things. What we probably do have to do is adapt the machinery a little bit to the needs of the particular competitions. And so it's, it's often observed, and I think it's entirely fair to observe, that the United States has been playing shorthanded with respect to uh, informational capacity since uh, the USIA, the US Information Agency was abolished in 1999, uh, sort of as a reward for having been so helpful in, in winning the Cold War. And so there have been various informational efforts or efforts to organize the US government for informational purposes, but none of them has, has really taken. And I think a lot of people would, would probably agree that we are uh, under-resourced and under-organized in this area. I don't know that the proper answer is to create a new U.S. information agency. That may be kind of the easy and, and lazy uh, approach. 
but but certainly you're going to have to see greater mobilization in this area. Um, you could think about economic statecraft and economic intelligence as areas where we're probably going to need greater bureaucratic capacity uh, as well. This isn't unusual. The, the bureaucratic tools that we needed to win the Cold War evolved over time. And, and so in the 1960s, when the competition over the Third World heats up, that's when USAID and uh, the Peace Corps, for instance, uh, come to the fore. And so we're in need of a bit more evolution today. But how do we act more quickly, Hal, right? I mean, during the Cold War, I think that when we look at that period, it, we, we have now been on the receiving end and seeing the Chinese doing what they're doing over a very long period of time. If you, if you went back and read what Andy Marshall was reading, writing and saying in 2000 would match pretty well with where we ended up, right? I mean, some of our intelligence assessments have been very, very accurate, whether about the Russian capability or the Chinese capability. It's just that modern American society moves at a plodding pace. Uh, during the Cold War, we moved with some alacrity when we were creating these kind of capabilities. I mean, what has to change on that front for us to be able to move at the speed and the scale of the problem, as opposed to we're going to do a lot of you know belly button gazing and 29 uh, analysis of alternatives before we sort of do that, which we probably should have been doing 10 years ago. There's, there's a concern that we have a five rapidly closing five-year window, which the Chinese have told us is a five-year window vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan, for example. Yeah, so uh, you know, this is a common critique of the United States, and it was critiqued during the Cold War, for that matter, too. And so, uh, you you know, lots of people would have argued in the 1950s that a democracy just couldn't move quickly and purposefully enough, or maintain a steady a steady course for long enough to be effective in competition with a ruthless totalitarian regime. And certainly, there are areas where it would be advantageous. To move more quickly. And, and in some ways, the China problem in particular is more difficult than the Soviet problem because the fact that there are um, so many actors within the United States and within lots of democratic societies that have an established interest in maintaining stable, profitable relations with China means that it's harder to do anything in the competitive sphere than it would have been vis-a-vis -vis the, the Soviet Union. You know, that, that said, the, the traditional American response is sort of we underreact to something until we overreact to it. And, and I actually don't know that that has changed that much. And so American attitudes on China have changed dramatically over the past right. two years uh, or, you know, over the past five years, just depending on what, what time scale you want to look at. And, and we're starting to see, I think, some fairly significant movement on uh, issues that matter a great deal. So So greater... Um, planning to involve allies and the potential defense of Taiwan if conflict breaks out in the Western Pacific, uh, things involving semiconductor supply chains. Again, the, the movement may not be as fast as we would like it to be, or, or perhaps not as fast as we would need it to be. But, but I do think there's, you know, one thing that the Cold War teaches you very clearly is the danger of um, looking at the past through rose-tinted glasses and, and thinking that, that things were easier and more coherent uh, than they actually were. I, I think when you look at the Cold War, I'm, I'm impressed by how messy uh, the policy issues were, how fractious the debates were, how ferocious the bureaucratic warfare was. And in a lot of ways, it seems very familiar to problems that we confront today. Um, I, uh, I say with some pride, I was a uh, Soviet uh, politics major. Uh, and so all the people you were talking about uh, when I 
graduated as the Soviet Union was uh, collapsing. Um, my, my dad, who was born in Soviet Armenia, uh, noted to me, uh, well, it's not that bad after all, because ultimately they're not going to escape the gravity of their own history. They will still always be a little Soviet. Um, and, and, you know, uh, and I always thought that that was kind of telling. And, and look at this, we're, we're back to, to, to using some of those skills. And, you know, I appreciate the messiness uh, of this, but I want to go to the nature of deterrence, right? Which is a combination of will and capability. And time and again, throughout the Cold War, the United States developed capabilities to deter its adversaries and also demonstrated a willingness to use force uh, sometimes, even if it was at risk, right? Uh, you know, ultimately, we were demonstrating we had a will to act, and we were also demonstrating that we had the capability. The concern now is that we appear to be sort of telegraphing neither. Uh, to Beijing and Moscow, right? They know we're conflict diverse. Uh, they know we're reluctant to pretty much pay any price, right? I mean, in the wake of uh, 20, the 2014 Ukraine uh, invasion by Russia, um, you know, American companies were pleading with the White House, please, you know, we depend on Russian titanium. We depend on Russian materials. We need Russia as a market. We need Russian energy. Uh, and, and ultimately, that had a tamping effect on the, the strength of the of the of the response. We prefer sanctions now. There's a sense that any deployment of military force might be a little too risky uh, for, for for us to do. And indeed, a Chinese academic, um, you know, recently made clear Beijing would take Taiwan by force in an operation that would take about a week by 2027, which is the centenary of the of the People's Liberation Army. How? What's? Are are we getting the will capability equation right? in this competition or or are our adversaries actually emboldened by a track record of our, our bark is a lot worse than our bite? I think the will question is complicated. I think that, um, you know, the, China, the Chinese are probably pretty sophisticated observers of American foreign policy. And so I think that most Chinese analysts are able to understand the difference between Afghanistan and Taiwan or even Ukraine and Taiwan. And so it's um, it's tempting, but it, it may be misleading to think that, you know, failure to resist in place A weakens your credibility in place B. Now, if there is a series of instances in which the United States is seen to give up ground or not resist uh, blatant aggression, then uh, that can affect the calculations of adversaries that, that happened during the Cold War, for instance. And so, uh, you know, it, when, the, so when the South Vietnam finally fell in 1975, when the United States was sort of consumed by its own uh, inner turmoil during the same period, there were certainly a group of officials in the Soviet Union who thought that the United States was less likely to intervene in other third world hotspots uh, in Africa, for, for instance. And so there may have been a slight emboldening effect there. Now, that said, the, the reason I guess it's, it's complicated yet again, because the Biden administration has been about as clear as it can be that it would come to Taiwan's aid in a crisis. President Biden has more or less explicitly said that twice. In both cases, aides have subsequently cleaned it up because it seems to cut against the policy of strategic ambiguity that we have. But I don't know that two times is an accident. He may actually be trying to tell the, the CCP 
something. So, so I don't know that, you know, the will question is, is complicated. I'm not sure that there's um, an, an obvious case to be made that the Chinese don't believe that we would help Taiwan if it were attacked. I think the capabilities question is, is maybe more um, difficult for us because the balance of power in the Taiwan Strait has been shifting so dramatically over the past two decades. And if you look out four or five years, the, the balance might look pretty good from China's perspective in the sense that the, if Xi Jinping asked the PLA, can you do this? They might say yes uh, at that point. And so I, I think what we have to do is instill sufficient doubt in Xi Jinping's mind and in the minds of his advisors that China would be successful in reclaiming Taiwan, whether through blockade or bombardment or outright invasion. Because I do think that the barriers to using force uh, are, are fairly high. I mean, Xi Jinping would have to be fairly confident that he would win in a Taiwan scenario because starting a war and losing it uh, is a really good way for a dictator to get overthrown and perhaps killed. And I assume that Xi Jinping knows that very acutely. And, and right, right, for his system, a lost war is actually an existential issue for not just him and his, but also for his party, right? It could, it could very well be. I, I can't uh, let you get away with this, uh, move on from this point without asking you about Afghanistan uh, and the shambolic American retreat from it. The good news is the administration appears to have learned a lot of lessons about coordinating with allies and partners uh, that we're seeing right now paying, paying some dividends now. Um, do, what, what do you, how do you perceive in a historical sweep how it was executed and that we did it, and does that undermine American credibility worldwide? Of sort of, wow, these guys can't even screw in a light bulb to save, save themselves. I think there are legitimate debates that reasonable people can have about whether withdrawing from Afghanistan was the right move. I, I think if um, it was going to take 5,000 American troops deployed on an ongoing basis to maintain something like a strategic stalemate there and prevent the government from falling, that probably would have been worth it uh, for counterterrorism interests and for a variety of other interests. If it was going to take 15 to 20,000 troops over an indefinite period to do it, I, I don't think that would have been uh, worth it. And so I think reasonable people can argue over that. And a lot of it turns on how much it would cost you to avoid what, what ultimately happened, a complete collapse of the government and a Taliban takeover. I, I don't think anyone would claim that the withdrawal was executed particularly well. I don't think anyone would, would take pride in the way that the government collapsed or the fact that we seemed uh, to be relatively late to realize that it was going to collapse. And you know we're learning more and more about how chaotic the evacuation was, although the number of, of people that was pulled, were pulled out of Afghanistan was was impressive in its own way. On, on the question of American credibility, it, it's never helpful to have a situation like that where uh, a country that the United States has fought to defend for 20 years uh, is toppled as American troops head for the exits. I, I don't think you know anybody would argue that, that that's a helpful optic to create vis-a-vis -vis allies or adversaries. But again, it, it depends on what the strategic context is. And so if the strategic context is that the administration wants to pay much more attention to the Asia Pacific and thinks that it will get some strategic dividend from withdrawing from Afghanistan in terms of resources or time or top level leader attention, 
then it doesn't necessarily have to be devastating to American credibility. A lot depends on what happens next. And so if uh, the story, you know, five years from now, we look back and the story of the Biden administration was a shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan, but then followed by a series of really interesting and creative initiatives to strengthen the balance of power in the Pacific, then I think you could make the case that the withdrawal you know, wasn't a fatal blow, certainly, to American uh, credibility and strength. If we look back five years from now and it's collapse of Afghanistan followed by a major Russian invasion of Ukraine, followed by you know three or four other big setbacks, I think we'll see it differently. What are the kind of capabilities, uh, do you think, and the scenarios the U.S. should use in planning its forces, if the fight is increasingly going to be happening in the twilight between war and peace, that it's going to be happening in that high, you know, the, the, you know, that there will be hybrid aggression in that gray zone. Do, do we need to accept risk in a big war to be better prepared for that twilight struggle? I, I think the, not the primary goal of, of DOD should be to get ready for you know potential high-end conflict with a great power rival principally china but but also russia to a significant degree because that's the sort of thing where you you can't fail right and, and nothing would be more damaging to uh, american interests or the u.s-led world order if the united states was to fight and lose a war against china or or russia uh so I, I think that that, you know, sort of preparing for the high end conflict has to be DOD's guiding imperative. But there, there are two caveats here which make this really, really hard. And so one is you know, there is a lot of competition happening in the space short of war. And so DOD does have a role to play, perhaps not the lead role to play, but an important role to play in asserting American influence and pushing back against uh, adversary coercion on a day to day basis, right? Whether that's in the South China Sea or in the Black Sea or wherever uh, you, you may be looking. The second caveat is that, um, you know, we can't fall into the trap of thinking that we only have to do one thing in our defense strategy, which is get ready for a big war with China. That may be the most important thing, but the United States is a global power. We have global commitments. And so we require the ability to um, project influence into regions other than Asia. And, and we require the ability to make good on our commitments in other regions if they, are, if they are tested. And so one of the reasons that the United States keeps having trouble pivoting to Asia, I mean, we, we've tried it under four presidential administrations now, is this very stubborn reality that we do have very important interests in the Middle East and in Europe in particular. And so when those interests are challenged in a serious way, we find it impossible simply to ignore the challenge or, or accept the setback. That's what we're seeing, of course, in Eastern Europe right now. It's not that the United States is going to militarily defend Ukraine, but I think that the Biden administration recognizes rightly that if there is a big Russian move into Ukraine and it results in a serious crisis of security in Eastern Europe, the United States get, will, will find it very difficult to resist uh, investing more resources, time, and attention in stabilizing that part of the world because it does matter very much to us. And, and so, yes, you should be preparing for you know, high-end war with China. I think that that's entirely, entirely appropriate and entirely necessary, but it can't be totally to the exclusion of these other things. 
And a brief word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Um, let me ask you about overreach, right? You, you wrote a foreign uh, affairs uh, piece, and I think it was very uh, relevant to the discussion we've been having because, uh, right, the debate in the United States tends to be, you know, a, a little bit too much guns or more guns or more butter, uh, as opposed to recognizing that every nation's resources are finite and that we have encountered this problem through, throughout our, our history. And in fact, we may be particularly overstretched right now. There's a whole bunch of reasons for it, right? In the 1950s, people weren't living as long. There, there was not expectation, you know, uh, expectations of uh, whether or not there would be health care or, or what have you. I mean, that's what drove the great society, uh, in fact, uh, ultimately. Um, we faced similar challenges during the Cold War, right? Eisenhower's reliance on nuclear weapons was to free money for domestic spending. Johnson fought, was fighting Vietnam, countering the Soviets and instituting the Great Society. We expended $10 trillion on, on two wars that pretty much may not have been as beneficial to us as we might've hoped. Uh, and now we've, you know, and the total debt now is $20 trillion. So if you're out of money, you have to start thinking how do we need to start thinking about where we are? Because this notion of pressuring allies and partners to, to just spend more money is, is not really going to happen the way we would like it to happen. I mean, right, that burden sharing debate's been going on since 1949 as well. I think we're probably a approaching a more fundamental decision, or at least the need to make a more fundamental decision about what you know, number and what type of global commitments the United States is willing to maintain, because the gap between what we say we are going to do and what we are able to do keeps growing. And the point I made in the piece you referenced is that the number and severity of the threats that the United States faces has grown considerably since, say, the mid-1990s, and our defense resources just, just haven't kept pace, right? And so now we find ourselves in a position where the U.S. effectively has a one-war defense strategy in that we recognize if we get into a big scrape with China or Russia, that, that will consume the vast majority of the globally available combat power the U.S. military possesses and all of the lifts and logistics and then some that the Pentagon has uh, as well. And that, that's a problem. Uh, and so it's, it's a reaction to a real, a real challenge, which is that you know, defeating China in a big war in the Western Pacific would be the most challenging thing the U.S. military has had to do since World War II, probably. And so intensive preparation for that is absolutely necessary. But nonetheless, it's, it's a problem if you have three or more theaters worth of commitments and those commitments are likely to be challenged in more than one place at a given time, which is what we've seen just in the past year or so. And, and so there are really three options a country can take in a position like this. And so option one is retrench, right? You can say that we are going to uh, appease, not in a pejorative sense, but just in sort of a descriptive sense, uh, rival C, because rival C is less threatening than rival B and rival A. Right? That's what the United Kingdom did in the early 20th century when it realized that it was overstretched. And among the countries it appeased so that it could focus on Germany was, in fact, the United States. You know, option two is you can increase the resources that you have at your disposal to try to make good on your commitments. This is what the United States did during the Korean War when we realized that we were horribly exposed in a variety of places at once, particularly against the threat of conventional 
aggression. And so we triple the defense budget overnight, basically, to try to close that gap. Now, neither of those is particularly attractive. It's it's hard geopolitically and politically to walk back from existing commitments. It can be hard as well to significantly ramp up the resources available for defense, although I think it's more of a political issue than an economic one. So you often default to the third option, which is muddling through, right? which is trying to maintain all your commitments without spending more, maybe finding clever ways of uh, ratcheting down the intensity of, of challenges from one rival or another. And that's a reasonable approach, but we may be coming, and I think what the Ukraine crisis is telling us is we may be coming to the end of the utility of that muddling through approach today. And so this problem has been building for a long time. The Biden administration didn't create it, but it has now inherited it. Uh, and so the, the choice we are, are facing as a country, sort of the grand strategic level, I think is becoming increasingly fundamental. Um, well, I mean, I, I think it's a uh, right for anybody who's been paying really close attention that, that that world had ended some time ago. But for anybody who was in any doubt that it's over, I mean, they should dispel that even if Vladimir Putin doesn't invade. Right. This should be kind of a nice wake up call. We don't have the right capabilities. We don't have the right approach. We're not taking the right mindset and we have to wake up. Uh, again, uh, right, when, when one of China's leading academics who's close to Xi Jinping uh, gives you a warning that says, like, we have a five, our window is five years, um, you'd better evidence some capability and will to deter the guy. Uh, and, if, and if you sort of fail to either punish Putin or deal with him, that's only going to be registered on the other side of the world, which, of course, Antony Blinken, I think, uh, understands. Um, so how do we, how work this long-term competition, because the one thing I would say that is different, the United States has never fought a power that's, you know, 1.4 billion people and significantly larger than it was, probably until you go back to, uh, you know, Britain as an adversary, right? In, in World War I and World War II, we were larger than our opponents were, right? We alone as the United States, without even adding the British Empire into it. In this case, the Chinese are, are bigger. They do have a lot of resources. They have a lot of human capital they can throw at some of these challenges. Um, and indeed, you know, we gave them and the Russians, right, access to our finest intellectual tools, our finest technology that's now being turned around and used, used against us. So the notion of stopping them from getting microelectronics is not going to work any more than it'll work with the Russians. You may delay them by a couple of years, but ultimately they're going to be able to get that capability. Um, just like we've never been able to deter any nation from getting nuclear weapons if they've wanted to get them. So how do we need to think about what this long-term competition looks like when every, you know, it's not the United States astride the world all in 1956 and can humiliate our allies at Suez. We're in a different ball game with more equal powers and access to technology than we've probably had since, I don't know, 17th century, 18th century? Well, allies are still the secret sauce. And so if you do the geopolitical arithmetic and you add up, you know, even Russia plus China, it still doesn't exceed or even frankly come close to exceeding the United States plus its European allies, plus its Asian allies, economically, militarily, geopolitically. The United States has long been able to 
punched dramatically above its own weight, and it is and remains the most powerful country in the international system because it has three dozen treaty allies and another three dozen close security partners that in various ways add their own capabilities and their own strength to ours. And that's really going to be the key to dealing with both Russia and China today. And, and so I think uh, it's going to look different in both cases. There, there is an existing multilateral organization, of course, that was created to uh, contain the Soviet Union and can play a useful role in that regard vis-a-vis Russia today. It's, it's very different in the Pacific where there is no Asian NATO, and I don't think there will be uh, anytime soon. So what you're seeing instead is basically uh, efforts to link together a variety of bilateral relationships and bilateral pacts or minilateral pacts so that they collectively add up to something greater. I mean, this is sort of the rationale for the quad. It ties together two U.S. bilateral alliances with an important U.S. strategic partnership uh, with India. It's the rationale behind AUKUS. It's the rationale behind uh, sort of the, the many um, supply chain alliance that has uh, sprouted up around semiconductors. What, what the United States is basically doing is creating overlapping mini coalitions of countries that are all threatened in some ways by more assertive Chinese behavior and trying to use them to create uh, a web of ties that constrains Chinese uh, expansion and assertiveness in a variety of domains. In some ways, it's a second best strategy, but I actually think it can get us quite a long ways. Um, and, and obviously, there's the, the new uh, Pacific Partnership uh, the administration is unveiling uh, with the United States, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, France, uh, thankfully, uh, and the United Kingdom uh, in, in the region. Um, to work on uh, climate uh, infrastructure and maritime uh, security. Um, let me shift gears uh, a little bit and uh, get your take because you wrote a provocative essay uh, some months ago, late last year, as I recall, uh, that actually China becomes a lot more dangerous as it gets weaker, right? In our model mindset, it's an ascendant China that's the danger. Whereas, you know, dying powers or wounded powers are a little bit like you know, dying stars, they, they're volatile and could blow up at any minute. And that creates a whole series of other problems, right? Um, how, and, and it's apparent that China's financial problems are serious, uh, serious enough, for example, for civil servants to take a one-third pay cut. That's the real big deal. Um, and with the population becoming increasingly ornery about you know, factory closures uh, and, and, and the like. How do we need to think ahead, Hal, for how, you know, we, I don't think we do as much forward strategic planning with clarity and honesty. How do we need to be thinking as we're executing this strategy to have sort of the headspace to think, okay, here's how things could go wrong, you know, and how to push them in a way that maybe doesn't break them. Because if you do break them, they will lash out in ways, right? Because for them, it's existential, right? If, if Putin loses a big scrape, all of the other oligarchs, you know, he doesn't get just voted out of office. It, it might end badly for him in, in other ways, or she, for that matter. I think that's a real danger. Uh, and one of, I think the argument that you were referring to is essentially that we might think of China as a peaking power in the sense that- Correct. Uh, it's encountering more and more economic problems underpinned by demographic problems and other things. 
but its coercive capabilities are growing apace and and becoming quite formidable. And so the the question is whether you know if, if Xi Jinping looks out at the world uh, and you know, looks down towards 2035 and sees a China that's actually going to be stagnating economically, might he be tempted to use some of the co- coercive capabilities? to grab what he can uh, before then. And I, I think that's a, that's a real danger. And that's actually the, the subject of the next book that, that I've written that'll be out. I've co-written it with a friend, Mike Beckley, and that'll be out uh, later this, this year. And, and it creates a really interesting problem. And so on the one hand, you have to find ways of deterring China and slowing it down uh, during what may be the period of peak danger during this decade, perhaps. But uh, you also have to not you have to avoid unnecessarily provoking it. And so, uh, you know, discussions about pursuing regime change, all out technological embargoes, uh, things of that nature could actually backfire, right? Because they could convince China that it has less to lose by moving dramatically now uh, as opposed to waiting. And so it's it's a very careful balance that has to be struck. Uh, You've got to deter on the one hand without unnecessarily provoking on the other. There are some Cold War parallels there, by the way, that there were periods of greater and lesser danger during the Cold War. The first 10, 12 years, 15 years were quite dangerous. Then you get into a period of lesser danger, for instance. And so we could see something similar today where, uh, you know, if we're successful in sort of, uh, you know, ramping up our deterrent capabilities over the next decade, we can get to sort of a calmer period uh, in the relationship. But I think it's going to be quite choppy until then. Two questions uh, left. Uh, one of them is on information and disinformation, right? During it, it's not that the Soviet Union. There are those who say that you know the information and messaging and disinformation the Russians are doing now is exactly the same as what they were doing in the Cold War, but that's not entirely true because. Um, there was still a mainstream media. If you were a reporter who was writing Soviet propaganda, the FBI would visit your editor and say, hey, you know, look, uh, you know, you got to rein the guy in or have a talk with him or be more balanced. Whereas now everybody is their own news source. And, you know, lies have a tendency and misinformation and disinformation have a tendency of proliferating and are actually being accelerated in the United States uh, by people who are em- embracing Kremlin uh, talking points, uh, ultimately. How, how do we fight the messaging war, right? I mean, as you said, uh, Hal, earlier in the uh, program, right, as unimaginative as, might, as it might be, we may need a US information service. How, how do we need to think about the information disinformation space? Because the Russians are right. The most important strategic terrain is the eight inches between your ears. So one of the lessons of the Cold War, I think, is that when you're dealing with disinformation, uh, one of the keys is to rapidly identify it, label it as such, and push back uh, against it. And this was obviously the purpose of something called the Active Measures Working Group in the 1980s, which, which was created to essentially bring together the various capabilities of the U.S. government, intelligence, law enforcement, diplomatic, informational, to start doing this on a sustained basis. And it was actually... Uh, quite successful. Now, in some ways, I think that the challenge is more difficult today because the information ecosystem is a bit more democratic, not always in a good way. There are fewer barriers uh, to entry, but also because the U.S. political landscape is more polarized. And so so there's a part of this that simply has to do with our own internal divisions and that the field for disinformation is a lot more fertile than it was, say, in the 1970s. Um, let me ask you one last question, and that's about democracy. If you look at the long sweep of history, 
democracies are aberrations and there are concerns that democracy is under assault uh, you know in the two most iconic democratic countries the united states and the united kingdom uh in in different ways uh where there was a sense that you know there can't be a demagogue that can have absolute hold on a great political party for example whether it's the, the british conservative party or the american republican party and indeed you know let's leave the option open that somebody could do that on the on the democratic side as well right i mean to make this a political um, what does history teach us about democracies? Uh, because people say the institutions are strong, but institute, you know, the building doesn't know whether the insurrection is good or bad. It's the people in it yeah. that determine what law, what norms are, right? What you, what, you know, and then the power is about what you don't do necessarily, not what you do do. How do we need to think about that? Because ultimately, right, the, everything stems from the United States being a beacon of democracy and as you've written so artfully in your book, we tend to do well when we live, even if we compromise occasionally, we live by our founding principles. Right. So I, I think that the there's no gainsaying the difficulties that the United States faces today. In some ways, the internal problems are quite severe. You know, historically, I think there are two things that give me optimism. And so one is that when it comes to strategic competition, uh, I think e even even flawed democracies are probably superior to the most externally formidable autocracies. I mean, we have these great built-in course correction mechanisms called uh, elections. Uh, we, we tend to make fewer catastrophic mistakes over time because our checks and balances act as checks and balances on bad ideas as well as good ones. And so it's, it's really hard to identify in the modern era uh, or in the past 250 years at least a uh, an autocracy that has had as good a global run as the United States has. And I think it's partially for that reason. The, the second point is just that we should think of long-term competition as an opportunity to invest in ourselves and, and make the United States a better version of itself. This is, of course, what happened in the Cold War. There were plenty of self-destructive impulses during the Cold War, such as McCarthyism. But the United States ultimately took the competition as an opportunity to attack problems like uh, racial segregation, to invest in the world's best university system, and otherwise to, to strengthen the United States internally. I think that's the model that we need to emulate today if we're going to be successful uh, in another round of great power rivalry. I mean, is it is it that the United States is sort of after 70 years, you know, after in the post-war period, had its stuff together, and then we're just devolving to sort of kookery that's characterized too much of American politics throughout its history. Is, is that another way of looking at it? I, I don't know that, the, you know, the level of kookery was less during the post-Cold War era than it has historically has been. I mean, there, there's a lot of kookery and political conflict in American history. It's not something that we like to remember, but it's, it's quite true. And again, this isn't to trivialize what's happening today, which I think is very concerning and in a lot of ways. But um, it, it does give you a little bit of perspective to remember that really sharp political conflict, even kind of troubling levels of political violence are less uncommon than we might like to think in the United States. And so what I think it, it reminds us is that, you know, democracy is, is not so much an outcome. It's not so much something that's permanent. It's, it's a struggle, right? And, and the struggle is to maintain and improve a system that for all its imperfections, I think is still far more attractive to most of the world than the alternatives that Russia or China have on offer.